people who lived the longest and were the happiest as they grew older were the people who were more connected to others socially and who had warmer relationships with other people. Seniority Authority exists to answer your questions on aging. The world has changed dramatically in a generation with more retirees than ever before, living longer, with more choices. If you're an older adult or have an older adult in your life, where do you go to begin to understand those choices? I'm your host, Kathleen Toomey, with over a decade of work experience in retirement communities. I can track down the right people to answer your questions. So send your questions on aging to me, and together, let's get smarter about growing older. Welcome, I'm Kathleen Toomey. In the next 45 minutes, you're going to learn the keys, how to live a longer, healthier, and happier life based on the world's most comprehensive longitudinal study. Thanks to our show sponsor, The Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. Now let's hear from today's guest. One of the top questions that I get is how to live a long and happy life. Theories abound about how to do this, but some of the strongest research comes from the world's most comprehensive longitudinal study, which has been going on for 83 years. My guest today is Dr. Robert Waldinger, director of Harvard's Study for Adult Development, also clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger is a triple Harvard, a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, as well as director of the Harvard program. Welcome to the program, Dr. Waldinger. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Now tell me, what is the most remarkable aspect of this study that's been going on for so long? Well, probably the most remarkable aspect is how long it's been going. 83 years is, as far as we know, the longest that any study has followed the same people. So we started following teenagers in 1938, and we followed them all the way to the end of their lives. A very few of them are still living, all in their 90s. And now we've studied their children, all of whom are baby boomers in their 50s and 60s. And soon we hope to study their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. But that's the most amazing thing is that the study went on when most longitudinal studies stop after the first five to 10 years. What was the inspiration behind starting the study? Well, they were two separate studies. One was a study of what was supposed to be the best and the brightest, the finest upstanding young men from Harvard, of course. So if you want to study health, you study all white men from Harvard 
So that's what they did. Of course, of course, right? <laughs> so that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to study healthy young adult development. The other study was a study of inner city Boston boys from the poorest and most disadvantaged families. And this study was started because the investigators were interested in why some children from really difficult backgrounds managed to stay out of trouble, managed to avoid juvenile delinquency and to grow up reasonably well. So they were two very different aims, but both were trying to study health at a time when most studies of child and adult development were trying to study what went wrong in development, pathology. As I understand it, you looked at every aspect of the lives of these young men that you began to follow and then followed subsequently. And I were marked on one of the most dramatic findings around two key aspects that you need to live a long, healthy and happy life. Can you talk about those two key aspects? Yes. Um, the first key aspect won't surprise you at all. It's about self-care. It's about living well in the sense that we found that, no surprise, the people who live the longest and stay the healthiest exercise regularly. They eat well. They avoid obesity. They don't smoke. They avoid abusing alcohol or drugs. So all of that combined sets people up to stay healthier longer. The second thing, which turned out to be a big surprise to us, was the finding that the people who lived the longest and were the happiest as they grew older were the people who were more connected to others socially and who had warmer relationships with other people. That was a surprise. I mean, we, we thought, well, yes, if you, if you have warmer relationships, you're going to be happier. Not a surprise. But that you actually would live longer, that you might develop the diseases of aging later, if at all. How could that possibly be because of your relationships? But it turned out that other studies were beginning to find the same thing. And now we know that this is a very reproducible finding when we study different groups of people all over the world. That's incredible to me. I'm really taken, I, I find great energy in that because what it says to me is that as adults of perhaps, shall we say, experienced adults, people who've had a few years on the planet, that there is something that we can do that will help increase our happiness and our health. Is that your interpretation? Oh, absolutely. To the two, both of those things, self-care. So really, really getting exercise, getting enough sleep, you know, doing all those things I mentioned and being sure that we take care of our connections with other people, that we keep our relationships strong and vibrant and make new ones. If you're in our audience and listening to this, what pieces of practical advice would you give people? And maybe we could even step back and say, when you talk about relationships, how are you defining that? Does that mean if I'm not married, then I will not be as happy as someone who is married? 
Is that yeah. how I should interpret that? People ask that a lot. And the answer is no. So they've done some studies that show that married people live longer than unmarried people. But those are studies that really don't get at what the underlying cause is. So it's not having a marriage license that does it. In fact, we also know that people who are really unhappily married may have more stress and more wear and tear on their bodies because of it. So the real question is, do you have warm relationships that help you weather the hard times, that help you manage stress? And, and one of the things that we think about is whether you have somebody in the world that you can talk to about personal matters. About one in four people will report, at least in the United States, that there's nobody in the world to whom they can speak about things that matter to them, about things that are really personal. That's no, no confidants at all. So one in four Americans have no one to confide in. Correct. That's and very well, sad. It's very sad. And some of these people are married. Some of these people feel so distant from the person they live with that they can't confide in them. So the real measure is not whether you have a marriage license. It's whether you have somebody who you feel you can really be yourself with and somebody who you feel will help you if you need it. We, we asked our study participants many years ago now, who would you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Mm -hmm. List all the people you could call. Some people couldn't list anybody. Some people made a long list and everything in between. And it's that feeling she's got your back, that you have a safety net that seems to be the most important thing or one of the most important things in this finding of ours that relationships keep us healthy. So let's explore that a little bit more. As, uh, as some of my friends would say, if one is good, 10 is better. Um, does, if you have more friends than anyone else, does that mean you're going to be happier than anyone else? Is it yes, a, you, is it a you win. If you competition? Have more friends, you win. The great American. Right. Uh, right. No, it's, no, it's not true. It's whether you have what feels to you like the right amount of social contact. So let's say you're a shy person and actually being with people can be quite stressful. So you might be a person who needs only one or two very close people in your life and that more people than that cause you a lot of stress. So for you, having more people would be a problem. There are other people who find it so energizing to have lots of people in their lives. For those people, having more friends seems to work out well. So it is a highly individual matter. And another characteristic that it seems is important in this aspect is not just friends, but friends you can confide in and be yourself with. And so I would say, I would extrapolate that that's another level of knowledge or vulnerability that you would have with your friends. I would say there's probably some people that are friends that you want to keep at a distance, but 
the ones you're talking about are ones that you can really be most vulnerable with. Is that accurate? Yes, but you're getting to something that's important, which is that some of our friendships and some of our relationships don't involve confiding or even getting emotional support. They might be casual relationships. I, I struck up a friendship with the man who delivers my mail because I sit on my front porch, particularly as the weather has been nice. And I, I will often be sitting there when he comes to deliver the mail. So we, we wave and we exchange a few words and we don't know each other. We're not close. We don't confide in each other, but there's something very kind of warming about knowing that he's going to arrive every day and we're going to say hi and exchange a few pleasant comments and that that actually turns out to contribute to our well-being. So you don't have to have a deep confiding relationship for it to be beneficial. So it's a matter of having those warm connections in your life. And if you are in the audience and you feel like maybe this is something that I need to start paying attention to and you are more experienced, shall we say, you're later in life, how can you make that happen? And I'm thinking especially of older adults who may have lost some friends or whose original friends may have moved away. What advice would you have for those folks to start to cultivate these kinds of of new friendships later in life? Well, certainly we know that casual contact with people is a very common way to start new friendships. So that's why actually in the workplace, water coolers are these kind of iconic places where people you know, happen to run into each other and they have little conversations and those conversations can develop into something bigger. So let's say you're not going to work anymore and you're not at an office every day. What else can we do? Well, for many of us, it's finding ways to be with people around shared interests. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a gardening club or a book club or a political campaign you want to work for or become a a poll watcher, you know, at the upcoming election and you meet people, you just casually meet people. And some of those people might become people you continue to have contact with, Mm -hmm. particularly if you come together over and over again. Religious communities serve that function. A lot of people become friends with people they meet at a religious service or gathering. Now, we can't have those gatherings right now in the time of the pandemic as easily, but there are other things that we can do online, on Zoom, and there are things we can do outside, including walking groups. Mm -hmm. Even in the cold weather, we can dress up warmly and go walking when it's not icy out. As uh, someone said, there's no such thing as bad weather, just poor choice of clothing. Yes, yes. Especially in New England. Yeah. So that, your mention of of the pandemic leads me to another question. I would anticipate that during this time of the pandemic, it's harder for people to connect with others and that perhaps we have to do, we have to be a little bit 
more focused on reaching out to others and building our friendships? Yes, very much so. Because we can't just casually walk over and see somebody or drive over or uh, go to a church service or whatever we used to do. So it means really thinking about how, how could I connect with the people who I'm not getting to see? People have set up, you know, cocktail hours. They have on Zoom. Over Zoom. Exactly. Uh, some people have set up even virtual dinners. Some creative ways. People have set up birthday parties, even surprise birthday parties, where you arrange a Zoom call with somebody and you don't tell them, but you arrange all sorts of the, for all sorts of other people to Zoom in at the same time to wish happy birthday and to That's chat. Great. So there are lots of things. Actually, my son had that. Someone, someone surprised, his girlfriend surprised him. And suddenly all these people from elementary school and college and all parts of his life suddenly were showing up on the screen. Oh, um, that's wonderful. So there are lots of new and creative ways that we can connect with each other when we can't see each other. I'd like to dig in a little bit on that question of Zoom, FaceTime, and social media. I know a lot of people who have friends on friends on social media. What is your take on the value of connecting through social media? And I'm, I'm going to differentiate between a static uh, social media presence, such as a, a Facebook or Instagram, compared to a live presence like a Zoom or a FaceTime. And I'm, I'm sure that you are uh, looking into this with your second generation of research, but is it, does it help build those warm connections to be on social media in those two different genres? It depends. <laughs> That's, it really does. What we're finding is that people are very different in how they use social media, and then they're different in how they react to being active in social media. So, and a lot seems to depend on individual temperaments and uh, habits and proclivities. And so what I would say is, first of all, that there is more research happening and we want there to be more research, mm -hmm. but we can find out who actually gets more depressed and unhappy when they're on social media and who gets happier and more excited. But I would say that for now, each of us can check this out for ourselves. So if you find yourself spending half an hour on Facebook or watching a Twitter feed for a few minutes, check in with yourself. Do you feel more energized afterwards? happier, more upbeat, or do you feel more depressed? Do you feel like you're missing out on life and everybody else seems to be having a great life out there? Depending on how you feel when you've been using social media and these digital tools, you can then decide whether you want to keep doing more of it or do less of it. That's a very good guide. So check in with yourself and see if you how you're feeling, and then either spend more time cultivating those close relationships versus, because I think it can be very easy 
to passively scroll, yeah. it's harder to pick up the phone to someone you may not have talked with in a while and reach out. And so perhaps sometimes we have to do the harder thing to get the, the greater gain. But what I hear you saying is understand where you are and check in to see how you're feeling. Yes. And the other thing is take more risks in reaching out to people. Like if there are people you haven't talked to in a while or people you've, you know, just been meaning to call but haven't and you think of it, do it. Most people are thrilled, especially now. Most people are thrilled to have somebody call out of the blue, to have somebody reach out. And so it really helps to take the initiative. If you think of it, get yourself to do it. Unless it's 3 a.m., then wait till morning. (laughs) No one wants to hear from you at that point. No, no. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think there is something that holds us back where we think of a friend that we haven't reached out to, but we're held back because... I should have done this earlier. I should. So is, are you saying that do it anyway and you'll, and they will generally be glad to hear from you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Most people won't be saying, well, why haven't you called before? Most people won't do that. They'll just be so pleased that you thought of them and that you've reached out. The other thing to remember is that some people are lonely and some people are isolated it may be hard for them to reach out because when you're lonely, you're a little more gloomy, you're a little more depressed, and that's more likely to make you reluctant to reach out to people. You start thinking, oh, nobody cares, nobody wants to hear from me. So if you are on the other side of that relationship, if you can, you be the one to make the first move because sometimes other people can't right now because they're just not feeling well. I think that is really perfect advice is to be the first person and to try that. And I have to believe that more people are depressed and lonely during the pandemic because all of their other typical social outlets are, have stopped. So that's got to make even more introverted people feel even more lonely because they're missing that casual connection that they may have relied on. So the key is don't wait, do this. And if you think that this is something that is going to help both you and the recipient be happier in the long run, that's really powerful. Yeah. The other thing is that reaching out online if you know how to do that, if you know how to send a message online, can be a kind of low-risk way to do it. If you're a little afraid to call someone on the phone, am I going to catch them at a bad time? Are they going to remember who I am? Well, sending a little message online can be a much easier, low-key way, whether that's email or a text or, you know, a message on Facebook, that that can be a low-risk way. And you will probably be surprised at the enthusiasm with which someone responds to you. That's a great idea to do that initially, just to send a feeler out and then have them respond and then connect with them in person or over the phone. I think that's a great solution. And it sounds like this might be something that 
older adults should really invest time doing. When you think of people who may be retired, may not be working, that investing in cultivating relationships, I think so many times people who are older focus on the past, what they used to have, their friends that they used to have, the activities they used to have. And it's exciting to think of engaging in something new for the future. Yeah. Is, is that a hard switch for older adults to make? It can be. It can be a hard switch for lots of people to make. They, I mean, I've heard 20-somethings say, uh, I don't, I'm not really very good at relationships, so it's kind of not working out for me. I'm not going to do much because I don't want to get my hopes up. So even young people get into that mindset. And certainly as we get older and we lose people to death, or as you say, to moving away, that, that it can feel like, oh, my time is over for a new relationship, for anything new. And that's just not true. I mean, people make friendships in their 90s. And so, I mean, we know this. It's documented in research. So it is very much the case that lots of new things happen for people later on in life. It's just that you need to be alert to some opportunities to take some initiative and not get into that frame of mind that says, ah, I'm just going to focus on the past because the future doesn't have much for me. That doesn't have to be true. So to be intentional about it and to really work at it and not give up and then yeah. you will yield results. Tell me about your second generation uh, study, the, the second generation that you are studying of this study that's been going on for 83 years. What are you hoping to find in this next generation? What are the questions that you feel still need to be answered? Hmm. So many. Well, the, the, so the first thing we did was we studied all the men and women in the second generation. In the first generation, we finally brought in the wives. When I started with the study 15 years ago, we, we brought in the wives and the wives sort of said, you know, it's about time. It we is about time. <laughs> it was about time. And, but now we have over half our women in the second generation. Fantastic. And, yeah. And, and what we've focused on is trying to understand how relationships actually get into the body and affect our health. So we're studying, we're trying to study the biological mechanisms that connect how we behave, how we feel in relationships, and what happens to our bodies over time. So we're studying mechanisms of stress reduction. We're studying how does stress affect the body? different body systems? How does it affect our genetics? Which genes get turned on and off in terms of gene expression? How does it affect our hormones? How does it affect our levels of inflammation and levels of cardiac arousal? So all of that, those are the mechanisms that we're trying to study. And so we're doing a lot of interesting things. We are stressing people out. We're asking them to give a speech we're asking them to do difficult math problems. And then we measure their heart rate and we measure their blood 
and you do all kinds of things that, that help us understand what happens, how do people manage stress, and how, how do, does the background they came from make a difference in how they manage stress? Uh, I think that I will very much look forward to the results of that because I think stress is the next frontier, understanding the impact on the body and, and how we can control or, or mitigate the impact of stress is, is going to be something that we in future generations really need to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and stress now has become so much more of an issue, partly because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. because there's a big scary thing out there that we're all trying to manage and it's unknown and it, you can't see it. There's a lot of political division in our country, which has increased everybody's stress levels measurably. And there are a lot of worries about things like climate change and the fires happening now and so many things. So, so that our general level of stress is higher than it used to be. And we're hoping that some of these things will calm down soon but it means that stress has become more and more something we need to learn how to manage as well as we can. Well, I think that is a wonderful goal. I'm thrilled that you are studying that, and I hope that we can have you come back to the show when you have learned a little bit more about stress. That's all the time we have today for our topic. I very much want to thank Dr. Waldinger, for sharing the information. I think what you've shared with us is very enlightening that we can live a longer and happier life by cultivating both deep and less deep, warm relationships. And that if we are intentional about that, we can, it's something we can start and change today. I want to thank you so much for coming on the program today, Dr. Waldinger. It was a pleasure. Great to be with you. Great to see you again. Thanks to our show sponsor, the Riverwoods Group, Northern New England's largest family of nonprofit retirement communities, where active adults find community, purpose, and peace of mind. Visit riverwoodsgroup.org. That's our show for today. Did it spark a question? If so, send us your questions at senioritythority.org and we'll track down the answer. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe, like us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, let's get smarter about growing older.